0: you turn to Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles, Mark chapter 8, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark since February, and uh, Lord willing, if we continue on the pace that we're on, we'll finish sometime in June. So we're immersing ourselves into the first recorded account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're seeing Him prayerfully, hopefully, as the Spirit enables us, as uh, the Gentile, believers who were being imprisoned and undergoing persecution in Rome were hearing him and seeing him in the first century. And that's what we're asking God to do. As they they heard it, as they saw Jesus, we want to see him in the same way. As they then went out to give their life for the sake of Jesus, we want to be able to do the same thing in our city and to the nations. And that's really, we talk about discipleship a lot as a church, being disciples of Jesus who make more disciples of Jesus and and we just can't say it enough. We can't emphasize it enough. But we are following a person. the person of Jesus. That's who we're chasing. That's who we're after. We're not following a church. We're not, we're not following a vision statement. A mission statement. We're not following a plan. All of that stuff is fine and well and good. And, and even has a place. We're not even following a book. You could be an expert on the Bible and miss Jesus the Bible only has value as it leads us to Jesus so we are following Jesus who has revealed himself only in this book no other place but we're following and we're learning and we're studying the Bible so we may become and mature and progress as followers of Jesus and so we don't want to miss that if we are simply a group of people for whom it can be said they have been with Jesus, we will be a changed people. And we will see people around us changed. And then, then we have a disciple-making movement in our city. Just from being with Jesus. So today as we walk through four different stories of the Gospel of Mark, see how they work together to help us see some important aspects of being a disciple of Jesus. And the first thing we see in the first story is a disciple of Jesus sees Jesus as caring for and being sufficient for all people. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to those that these also should be set before them. And they ate... And were satisfied, and they took up the baskets, the broken uh, broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. It's been a few weeks since we've been in in the Gospel of Mark, so quick overview, quick review. Jesus has had some serious confrontations with the Pharisees over religion back in chapter 7, and how Jesus' teaching did not fit their mold, did not fit their traditions. And Jesus leaves them after this confrontation, calling them out. He travels very far away through some Gentile lands for miles and miles and miles over a long period of time. And while he was in these Gentile lands, he's healing and ministering to the people, and the Gentiles were coming to him in droves. So for the second time, he finds himself in a desolate place with lots of hungry people. So what is he going to do? Now we know that, that Jesus had already fed the 5,000. And this fact that Jesus has already done this, and here's another story about this, has caused some people to say, well, this is just the gospel writers recording the same story twice for emphasis because it's so amazing. To take a little bit of food and in front of all these people, there's no magic trick. He's multiplying it, feeding thousands where food is left over after they're fully satisfied. So obviously this is the gospel writers saying, let's, let's tell it again. It's so good. Reruns, right? But there's so many details that aren't identical to the first story, there's no way that it could be the same story twice. First, in the first feeding mark, is explicit that it was 5,000 men. So if you add women and children, you're talking about 15,000, 20,000 people. This story is explicit that it's 4,000 people, all included. Big crowd, but much smaller crowd. In this feeding, you see Jesus taking all the initiative and directing the disciples and telling them what to do. I tried to emphasize that by saying, he, he did this. He directed the crowd. He took the bread. In the, in the first story, if you remember it, it was the disciples coming to him. we got this problem. What are we going to do? Well, uh, do you have any food? He began to ask them questions. He began to prompt them through questions. And the disciples did most of the work in the first story. There are, tw- there are different amounts of baskets of leftovers picked up, seven baskets instead of 12. In fact, and a little bit later, we're going to see Jesus ask the disciples in the feeding of the 5,000 how many baskets were left over, and they're going to say 12. In the feeding of the 4,000, how many baskets were left over, and he's going to say seven. Like if, there were, if it was the same account told twice, then, then why is Jesus asking these questions? He's either lying or he doesn't know. In either case, he's not God. And if Jesus is lying or ignorant, he's not God, we've got a big problem here. We're just wasting our time if Jesus is not God. We're just religious. The last difference and the key difference is that this is a Gentile crowd. Where in the first feeding it was a Jewish crowd. Which really gets to the reason behind the fact that Jesus did the same miracle twice. In other words, as Jesus fed the Jewish crowd with bread and fish in abundance and they ate until they were satisfied. Jesus does the same with the Gentile crowd, showing he is also sufficient for all peoples. He has come for the Jews first, but he's also come for the Gentiles. He's come to save all peoples. This was controversial to the Jew, but this was life. This was hope to the Gentiles, especially the original audience who heard this letter for the first time. So the disciples are watching all this happen. Jesus having compassion, it says in verse 2 on this crowd, uh, who, who are with him. And, and Mark's language here about the crowd is not negative. It's not, not, not even like the crowd he fed earlier who just happened to get stuck with Jesus. The language that Mark uses to describe the crowd is that they wanted to be with Jesus. Like they just kept following him. They couldn't get enough of him. They're, they're following even to desolate places, even though it means they're far from home and far from food. They're staying with him. So the disciples are seeing this. They see Jesus personally intervening for these Gentiles to feed them. Unlike the first miracle where the disciples did so much. And it would not have gone unnoticed by the disciples this incredible care, compassion, and provision Jesus was having for these Gentiles. This was shocking. It was always God's plan to bring the nations into His family. That the blessings of redemption and salvation were for more than the Jews. If you go back to Genesis 12, where God first established his covenant with one man who would become a nation, Abraham. The blessings of that covenant were always intended for more than one man and one nation. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. Oh, bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through this one who in your family will come and be a blessing to the nations. And there were pictures and examples of this throughout the Old Testament. Naaman, the Syrian general, healed by Elijah's instructions. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who lived in Jericho, who helped out the spies of Israel when they were coming to conquer Jericho. Uh, she was brought into the family of God and even into the lineage of Jesus. The Moabite wife, uh, Ruth, eventual grandmother of King David, married to the covenant people of God. Jonah, the, the rebellious, disgruntled prophet, sent to another nation... Assyria, the evil city of Nineveh, to proclaim God's judgment so that these wicked sinners could repent and have a chance at life and life with God and forgiveness. By the time of Jesus' incarnate ministry, the the blessings of a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was seen by many of the Jews and, and even the disciples, as we'll learn later in the book of Acts, as something only for the Jews. Like they struggled with this. It was ingrained in them that God's blessing was only for us people, the Jewish people. What do you mean the Gentiles are being brought in? What do you mean we're being sent out to the Gentiles? As Jesus is traveling through these Gentile lands, he's being well-received. In fact, he's being better received by the Gentiles than the Jews. They're spending time with him. They love to be with him, as Mark describes in this passage about the crowd. And what the disciples are learning what we are learning about God is the heart of God, the compassion of God for all people, all nations. In fact, there's an interesting play on words in the text. Verse 4, when the disciples ask, how can we feed these people? The word in the original language could be translated as satisfied. In fact, it's the very same exact root word that's used in verse 8, that they ate and were satisfied. In other words, When you combine that with Jesus' direct personal involvement in this feeding, he directs the disciples, he directs the crowd, he blesses the food. It's as if the story is saying, who can possibly satisfy all of these people? And the story is saying, Mark is saying, Jesus can. Jesus can satisfy all these people. Only Jesus can satisfy the nations. Only Jesus can satisfy all the peoples in the world. There's no satisfaction like the fullness and the life that comes from Jesus. There's no more important message we have as the church to the nations and all peoples in Monroe than Jesus, the bread, the giver of life. Only Jesus can satisfy like this. All other religions fall short. So as America, as a nation of immigrants, we continue to see a swell in the immigration population of our nation. Now you can debate, discuss, and talk about what we should do as a government or political parties all you want, but our our role as a church is clear. It's clear. We go to the nations, and if the nations are here, we go here. Monroe is filled with the nations. ULM is filled with the nations. And we have this incredible opportunity to go to these people with the gospel, to see them transformed by this fully satisfying Jesus and see them go back to their people, back to their cultures with the gospel Amen. and see a gospel movement in those nations leading to the day when all nations will worship around the throne of Jesus and praise the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That is the heart of God. That is the, the compassion of God, which means that is our heart and if it's not there needs to be repentance there needs to be repentance Jesus did it Jesus showed it the disciples saw it and they would one day do the same thing in the book of Acts they would bring the bread of life to the nations and here we are 2,000 years doing the same thing doing the same thing secondly what we'll see in the next story is a disciple of Jesus sees those who oppose Jesus and should be grateful and humble Verse 11, the Pharisees came, that's where Jesus gets off the boat, and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, he got into the boat again and went to the other side. The language here is of a strong confrontation from the Pharisees. They have come out to him, not to have a discussion, not to have a debate, but to demand. Show us a sign. You do this. We're demanding of you, and if you don't, we're rejecting you. They are, they are fed up. Do something to prove who you are. Now, interestingly, Jesus has done dozens of miracles. They're aware of this. They're not looking for another miracle. They're looking for some kind of divine authorization from the sky. Maybe fire falling down from heaven. Maybe God writes it in the sky. Something other than a miracle to prove who Jesus was. And Jesus' response is this deep sigh, this exasperation. This despair, this dismay, like uh, there's nothing more I can do to convince you if you won't already believe. Your rejection of me, I feel it and I'm sighing. Another sign will not bring faith in your hard hearts. Another sign or evidence of Jesus' nature and character will only bring another demand for another sign because they did not want Jesus as Jesus has already revealed himself. They wanted Jesus as they wanted Jesus. A Jesus they could control. A Jesus they could make happen things that they wanted to make happen. The problem with that is when you want a Jesus you can control, you want a Jesus you can understand, then you have a Jesus that doesn't require faith. You're creating your own version of Jesus. You're becoming your own God. Now, we don't have blind faith, meaning Christianity is not built upon a a step into the unknown or a step into the dark. Christianity is built upon historical facts. This man really lived. We have eyewitness accounts that have been preserved for thousands of years about everything that he did. And if you study the text and you study the historicity and the accuracy of the text, what you find is that the Bible is the most accurate historical ancient work that we have. More than the Roman historians, more than the Greek historians, more than any other document that was written at that time. So we don't have a blind faith, but we do have faith. We weren't there. We didn't see him. We didn't touch him. We weren't actually physically in his presence. But when, as Jesus told Thomas, when Thomas doubted the resurrection, Thomas needed to see and touch Jesus. And so a week after Jesus appeared to all the other disciples, he appeared also to Thomas and said to Thomas, touch me, feel me. This is real. I've really physically, bodily risen from the dead. Jesus says to Thomas in John 20, 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's us. And that's most of the followers of Jesus for all time. I had this conversation this week with a man who I'm meeting with weekly who doesn't have saving faith in Christ. And he he wants God to appear to him to speak to him audibly even in order to believe. I don't know if I can believe it. He would just say something to me. And I'm like, he has. Look at this. He's filled with his love and his grace and mercy for you. I don't know if I can believe it. You know, why isn't Jesus in the history books more? Well, I wasn't there. I, didn't see. I mean, literally he's saying all these things. He's in his 70s. He's dying. And he needs Jesus. And so, so pray for this man. And as I I was studying this passage this week, I was able to use this passage as we talked about what faith is. Faith is trusting in the revelation you have received, that it is true, so much so that you place the weight of your hope on that revelation that you have received, that it is true, and you believe it. And you believe it so much that you live it out. That's faith. It doesn't mean we know everything. It doesn't mean we have all of our questions answered. But this is what we received, and I believe it. And I'm placing all of my hope, I'm pushing all the chips in on this fact, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Like I love apologetics, I love defending the faith and articulating the faith in and, and, and contrast with other faiths and other belief systems, giving reasons for why we believe what we believe, but you can have all your questions answered and you still have to have faith. That's right. like, and that's true of other belief systems too as well. That's true of science as well. Science doesn't wrap everything up. There there comes a point in all of the belief systems where you have to take a a step of faith to cross that gap between what you know for sure and what you believe. I told this man, I I said, look, I've been been married 17 years. I've known my wife 20 years now. 17 great, fabulous years. I am a blessed, lucky man. Anybody who knows me and knows Jennifer, you know that, right? But, But what if, and I have like a million percent confidence that Jennifer is faithful to me. There's no question in my heart, I don't have any thought or worry or anxiousness at all that she's not 110,000 million percent faithful to me. But what if I hired a private investigator to follow her around when I'm not there? And what if I had an email tracking software and I had some kind of tracking software in her phone to watch all of her messages? Oh, I'm confident she's faithful to me. So I'm checking everything that she does when I'm not around. Do I really trust her? I have to have all the evidence and all the proof. Is it possible for me to trust her? No, it's not possible. It's not possible at all. Because I have to have everything verified. In fact, if you, if you can imagine, if I was that kind of husband, you'd know what well, that kind of guy does. He's like paranoid. He's a freak. You've seen the movie. She ends up dead, right? <laughs> that, it doesn't go well. But But if I trust her... I don't have to have everything verified. I know. I know our relationship and I know how we work and she feels the same way about me. It's the same with these Pharisees. They were not going to believe with one more demonstration of Jesus' divine nature. They would only have demanded another sign. They were beyond faith. Now there will come a day where we won't need faith when we're in heaven. We're in the eternal state. Faith will be sight. Hopes will be realized. But now we need faith. And through the revelation of Jesus Christ in scriptures, we have everything we need to know God, trust God, love God, follow God. Everything. In fact, there's a story in Luke 16 about a rich man and Lazarus. Now, some of you know that story. I would encourage you to read it. Lazarus was a beggar. Outside of the rich man's, who's unnamed his house, begging for food. They both die. Lazarus is carried into the bosom of Abraham. The rich man goes to a place of torment and pain and fire and, and anguish. And he calls out for Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his his finger in a pool of water and and just give me a little bit of relief from the torment that I'm in. And and Abraham says, I can't. There's this great chasm fixed between us, and I can't cross that. So the rich man says, well, then send someone back to my brothers so they don't come to a place like this. They will change the way they live. And Abraham says this in Luke 16. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Think about that. Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, which is just another way of saying the Old Testament. They have the Old Testament, not even the New Testament, the Old Testament on scrolls. They have that. If they won't believe that, they're not going to believe someone who rose from the dead. Think about what that's saying about the sufficiency of Scripture, about the life giving nature of Scripture. It's more powerful in our life than if someone rises from the dead and comes and bears witness about Christ in eternity. That is amazing. Which should cause us immediately to question ourselves what is my relationship with the Word like if it's that powerful? Incredible statement. Jesus rejects the Pharisees with the same language he uses back in Mark 3 when he accuses them of the unforgivable sin, the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He he leaves, he gets back into the boat and he leaves without them. And as he will with all people who hear the revelation of God through his son Jesus, through the scriptures who refuse to believe in Christ. We know Jesus through the word. Rejecting Jesus or the word means there is no life for you. There's judgment so believe, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus. The disciples did that. They got in the boat and they sailed away with the Pharisees in their hard hearts standing on the shore. Now the disciples of Jesus, I said there, should have been grateful and humble because they saw the same evidence. They heard the same words of Jesus and yet their hearts weren't hard. They weren't still demanding a sign. They believed. So they should have been grateful and humble that they had come alive in Christ. I should have been grateful and humble. Like we should be grateful and humble that God saved us. But what we discover is they left the Pharisees standing on the shore but they brought some of the Pharisees thinking with them into the boat. And that's where we pick up the third story where we see a disciple of Jesus fails to always see Jesus clearly. Beginning in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Ugh, the disciples. Like these are the stories that help us know the Gospels and the, the Bible is true. Like if you were making this up, you don't put this story. And it gets worse for them in a, in a few minutes. There's nothing here but Jesus is going to scold his closest Followers. Despite the fact there were seven loaves, seven baskets rather, of leftover food, somehow they only got one loaf. One loaf of miraculous bread among twelve men on a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. Not going to work. It's just not going to happen. This is not uh, uh, something that is, is going to work for them. And you can imagine they begin to bicker and argue. Peter, it's your fault. You're in charge. Why don't you get the bread? No, John, it's your fault. I had other things to take care of. I'm John, after all, the beloved disciple. Well, James and John, or James, why didn't you do it? Matthew, how come you didn't bring no bread? Maybe it was Andrew and Nathanael who grabbed the loaf, and they're like, I'm not sharing with y'all. I got my loaf. You should have got a loaf for you. You can just imagine the bickering that's going on among these men. In the middle of this bickering, Jesus says in verse 15, watch out. Beware. Strong words of, of consider what you're doing, Consider what you are saying. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now what in the world is Jesus talking about? Leaven is, if you know bread, is the yeast part of the bread dough that contains the bacteria that feeds on the sugars. That a byproduct of that fermentation process is the, the creation of carbon dioxide, which is released and creates all those little yummy air pockets inside of bread. So when bread rises, that's what's happening Leaven, yeast is eating the sugars and creating carbon dioxide and the bread is rising and you bake it and you put butter on it and jelly and whatever else you want to put and it's amazing. The first real exposure to leaven in scripture is when God commands his people in the night of their exodus from Egypt to institute this meal called the Passover. When death passed over those whose door frames were not covered in the blood of the lamb or were covered rather in the blood of the lamb so that their firstborn would not die. This was the final plague of judgment on the Egyptians that would lead to the release of slavery for the Jews. Exodus 12. This Passover meal, which Jews would eat for thousands of years, contained unleavened bread. No leaven. We're leaving in a hurry. We got no time for bread to rise. So we're going to eat unleavened bread, signifying the speed of their journey. And leaven is spoken of from then on in the scriptures almost universally in negative terms. Like usually, leaven signifies sin. As in, a little leaven affects the entire loaf of bread. So a little sin can affect the entire body of a person. You, You might think of leaven in terms of cancer. No one wants cancer in their body, even a little bit. Because cancer could multiply and spread and kill the entire body. You want the cancer out of your body. You want the leaven out of your life. The sin out of your life. So Jesus is using leaven here in a negative way. Referring to his opponents and warning of his disciples. The confusing part is... Why did he lump the Pharisees and and Herod together? Because these two groups had nothing in common. Herod was a puppet king of the Roman government who was a Jew setting power over the people. He really just did what Rome said. But Rome was hoping if they had a Jewish king, maybe they'd be okay with the fact that they were under Roman uh, occupation. And so Herod was hated by the Jews and really not trusted by the Romans. Nobody liked this guy. And he was despicable on top of that. The Pharisees were this group of religious Jews who were very devoted and and, uh, fastidious in their obedience to the law, their understanding of the law. They had written lots of documents over hundreds of years about what it means to obey the law on an everyday basis. The Pharisees were well respected by the people because nobody obeyed the law like they did. If you're not sure, just ask them, they would tell you. Very holy, very righteous, very devout, and very good at pointing out the sins of everybody else. The Pharisees had zero political ambition. They just wanted Rome to stay out of their way so they could obey the law. Herod was very political. But neither one of them wanted Rome on top of them. So these people don't have a lot in common except for this very small detail back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. After Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, showing how ridiculous the Pharisees and their traditions were, it says they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him, these Jews who were faithful to Herod. Common foes can form great alliances. And the common foe here was Jesus. And the common bond these two groups had was they didn't have faith and believe in Jesus as a Messiah and Savior of the world, which was just demonstrated by the Pharisees. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, beware of this leaven, this cancerous leaven, thought our belief are actually unbelief the Pharisees and Herod have in common in other words disciples don't let unbelief lack of faith lack of trust a misunderstanding of Jesus creep into your hearts and minds maybe on the heels of the disciples seeing the Pharisees ask for this sign maybe they think yeah why don't we get a sign he didn't give it to them but maybe he'll give it to us For sure, Jesus knew that there was one among them who never truly believed and would one day, in fact, betray them. They were definitely demonstrating a lack of faith and belief at this moment because here we have these men who have been with Jesus. They've seen amazing miracles. They're already arguing and bickering over the fact they only have one loaf of bread. And apparently, between verse 14 and verse 16, somebody ate it. Because in verse 14, they have one loaf. Verse 16, they have no loaves. So somebody's already scarfed the thing down Seems rational, lack of planning, planning selfishness, lack of organization, seems like something legitimate to gripe about, except for the fact you have a man in the boat who just fed 4,000 people from a little bit of bread, basically nothing. And he can make stuff appear from nothing. He can take your one loaf and fill the whole boat up with bread. What are you doing? Why are you arguing about this, disciples? Unbelief, Lack of trust is creeping in and they're griping and complaining about their physical provision when they're sitting in the boat with the one who's provided everything for them for the last 18 months or two years, however long it's been. It's like when you have a baby, an infant, and they're hungry. What do they do? You just tell them, uh, I have some food. I'm going to warm it up and get it ready to feed you. You're going to be fine. And they're like, okay, cool, Mom. Cool, Dad. No they're screaming their bloody head off like they're ripping their arms and legs off. Because a a baby is not mature enough to understand there is more than enough provision for you, child. It's coming. You just have to wait. Just as we, in our immaturity, fail to trust in the provision of our Father in heaven. What's happening among the disciples is their lack of understanding and seeing Jesus for who he is is creeping in. And so Jesus, in verse 17, forcefully confronts them. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And it should say they mumbled. No doubt they mumbled. Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you, did you take up? Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Eight mostly rhetorical questions that cut to the heart of these men. You can only imagine their silence. They want there to be silence. Language Jesus uses. Is taken, pl- taken from places like Ezekiel 12. 2. Son of man. You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. You have eye, Who have eyes to see but see not. Who have ears to hear but hear not. For they are a rebellious house. Guys this is not opposition like the Pharisees. This is misunderstanding. And a failure to see. Of his closest followers. Which in fact makes this situation so dangerous, which is why Jesus is so forceful with them. You see, their proximity to Jesus could lull them into a false confidence about the nature of their heart, and they can get into a boat and argue about bread in front of a man who can create bread from nothing, and if Jesus had not interjected more than likely, they would have just kept arguing. The danger for us being a church plant, most of you from the very beginning, you've been with us. A church plant that calls itself gospel-centered. A church plant that spends a lot of time talking about the gospel, and how to gospel, be gospel-fluent, how to preach the gospel to yourselves, and how to proclaim the gospel to each other, and how to live out the gospel in every phase of life. We can be so gospeled up. We can have this proximity to the gospel that will mask and hide our whole in our gospel understanding. Many, if not all of us, have jumped through all the religious hoops. And we have this intellectual grasp of the gospel. And yet what we have is we have these gaps between what we know and what we experience that show themselves like it showed up in these disciples. We can articulate the gospel, yet live with anxiety and worry about how well our Father's caring for us. We can know the gospel, yet live in laziness and being so self-absorbed that we can't put down our phones or devices long enough or get off of Netflix or Instagram or Snapchat long enough to be in real relationship with people who love us and are sitting right in front of us. We can know Jesus and absolutely affirm how much Jesus loves us and others and yet do very little to invite people into our life and genuinely love them so we can share the gospel with them. We can affirm God's desire for all people and all nations to know him yet live this homogenized life where we live around everybody who looks like us and thinks like us. And the only time we're around different ethnicities is when they're serving our food or checking out our groceries. We can know all the fact in our head and completely miss the heart and desire of God to know Him, trust Him, enjoy Him, and spread what He loves to others. And yet, here we are. Another Sunday, check. Another DNA meeting, check. Another missional community outing and service project and meal, check, check, check. Guys, being part of a church is a dangerous thing if you don't have a heart captivated by Jesus. Because you will grow in your religion and you will grow in your false assurance and you will grow in the hardness of your heart. I just confess, I have an opportunity this afternoon to spend an hour, about an hour, with a group of people inviting me to this event who mostly don't know Jesus. And I've struggled the last few days with this desire to go. Because I'll be by myself, a group of people that I don't know. I'll be engaged in conversation with a group of people who don't know and value Jesus like I do. And they'll either be critical of Jesus or they'll be worshiping their false gods. And I just want to argue them to death. I just want to stand up and tell them how much better Jesus is. But I know I can't because that... It is not it's not the type of events, a memorial service, it's not the type of event where you do that. But I know that there's a more gracious and kind and and loving way to love these people and to, to get to the gospel with them. I, I just want to go listen to it, right? And it's gonna make a busy Sunday even busier. And I I don't want to be busier on Sunday. And if I stayed there. I would be just like these misunderstanding disciples in the boat, and yet by God's grace, I'm going to go because it's the very kind of people who need Jesus, and God has opened this door for me to be there. And if Jesus had my schedule today, He would be there. And I've told you, so you can ask me tonight at the Wild West Party: Did I chicken out or did I go? Hold me accountable. Now, if the story ended here with the disciples, it would be a place of despair, just like it is with us if our story ended with our failures. But that's never how Jesus leaves his followers. You see, it wasn't that they didn't have faith or a relationship with Jesus. They did. It was a failure to fully see and understand who he is. And guys, we all do that. We all fail at times to see Jesus clearly, to see him fully. We all have areas in our mind and our heart where we fail to see and believe in who Jesus fully is. When we come to Christ in faith, we're made alive in Christ, we have full access to everything we need to become everything God has created us to become. Where we then enter this process of being sanctified, changed, and transformed and growing into maturity. The disciples went through that. We go through that. And so here's the good news of the last story. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to finish what he started in us. See this in the last story, uh, number four. Disciples of Jesus can have confidence that Jesus will complete their maturity by giving them more sight. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they, are like, they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus goes to a small town, a blind man is brought to him. He cares about the man, doesn't want to make a spectacle out of him, so he pulls him away into private so he can minister to this man, touch this man, heal this man. We get a very similar healing as Jesus performed back in chapter 7 when he uh, used spittle to heal the man who was deaf and mute. Now he uses spittle, spit to heal the man who was blind, except for one very important difference. This is the only healing of Jesus that occurs in stages. He healed him partially, and then he healed him fully. It's not like Jesus was having an off day, or he said the incantation wrong. You know, there's nothing like that. Everything Jesus did was purposeful. There's a reason this healing took place in stages. And the purpose was that he not only cared for the blind man, he cared for his disciples, that he had just scolded, And he wanted them to see something. After his scolding, he begins to heal this man and he does something interesting. He, something he never does in other healings. He asks him a question. Do you, can, can you see anything? Like usually Jesus is just power, boom, get up, walk, see, speak, live. Just pronouncements. I know I'm healing them. But now it's like he's not sure if he's healing. Do, do you see anything? Very similar to the language he had just said to the disciples, Having eyes, do you not see? Making this connection that was obvious to them. And the man saw, but not clearly, just like the disciples had faith, but lacked perception and understanding. And so Jesus graciously, lovingly completes the blind man's healing, just like he will lovingly, graciously complete our sanctification and maturation. Why? How? Rather by giving us more and more sight. This is the work of Jesus. Jesus initiated this. Jesus did this. Jesus made this happen. This wasn't the blind man or the disciples pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. It was them being in relationship with Jesus and Jesus doing this for them. Jesus maturing them, growing them, being sovereign over every aspect of their sanctification and their growth and maturity. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12 tells us. He begins it and he finishes it. And it's him doing it. So when we get to heaven, nobody's beating their chest. Look what I did. Everybody's falling down before the lamb saying, look what he has done. As you have days when... Your failure to believe, your failure to see, your failure to say no to sin, your failure to be who deep down you really want to be. Like we all have this person inside of us. This, this best version of ourself that we have because we've been born again. We have this new nature inside of us. This best version of Jared, Where I'm loving and I'm disciplined and I'm bold and I'm kind and I'm patient and I'm selfless and I'm sacrificial and I'm humble. Like all the time to all people. I can see him in me. And sometimes by God's grace, you get to see him as well. But I also see that broken version of me that struggles, that's not consistent, that battles with sin and loses. And if I'm not careful, I can get so down about that gap between who I am and who I want to be, I can be tempted to quit. And many of us, if not all of us, Go through those seasons and have those days. But know this, Christian, Jesus sees the best version of you all the time. He sees who you're going to be. He knows where you're headed, and that's how he sees you all the time. Because your standing before God is not rooted in your performance, Or your standing before God would be up and down based on how well you're doing. Your standing before God is rooted in the performance of Christ. He sees you at your best all the time. That doesn't mean the failures aren't a reality. They are reality. But he's even using those failures to make you like Jesus. To learn and grow from your mistakes. He sees this version of you all the time because it's the version of you that's been changed by him. And all the time he's working to chip away the old, to breathe life into the new. And he will finish his work. He will not quit on you. Even when you most want to quit. He will not be impatient with you. Even when you're most impatient with yourself and others. He will not stop loving you. Even when your heart is cold. He will not stop pursuing you even when you quit chasing him. He will never turn his back on you even when you turn your back on him. He is the perfect great shepherd. Revealing his love, grace and mercy to you to captivate your heart even when you're chasing 10,000 other things beside him. He is the perfect great shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. And as Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave us himself. There's nothing else he's going to hold back to make you like Jesus, to grow you, mature you. Nothing. He's going to pour it all out. He's going to give it all that you need. And he's not going to quit on you. This is why we follow a man. It was not a system. It was not a book. It was not a church that climbed on the cross. It was a man. It's a man who laid down his life for our sins. And that's why we love a man. We sing about a man. We pursue a man. Because it's he alone who did this. And only He will love you as you need to be loved and pursue you as you need to pursue and give you the sight that you need. Whatever failures you see in you, wherever you struggle to perceive and see, know this, it won't always be like that. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. Do you see and believe that Jesus is necessary and sufficient to fully satisfy all peoples? And is your life given to pursue all peoples with Jesus and his gospel? In what areas of your life do you most struggle to understand what Jesus desires for you to know, do, or experience? I encourage you this week. Share those with your DNA group. Work together to help each other understand what Jesus wants you to see. How much confidence do you currently have that Jesus is working in you and will complete the good work he has started? Is that confidence in Jesus leading you to joy, peace, and devotion to him? Father, we're so grateful for Jesus, that he would come, that he would live, that he would love he would die and that he would rise and give us life and forgiveness and hope and peace help us to see that today in communion in this prayer we're about to read help us to see that today in these songs that we sing most of all help us to see that in our lives as we leave to live out this reality in our city Father we ask the Spirit of God to come and do work that only the Spirit of God can do for the glory of God alone. In Jesus' name.